You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. So our second conversation tonight is focusing on knowledge as illumination. Uh, We have actually had a few people who weren't able to come along tonight. Uh, The first was Lauren O'Dwyer, who uh, was formerly an advisor to the Minister for Creative Industries, um, currently working with strategy over in the Arts Centre. And had she been here, uh, very much wanted me to let you know that her proudest contribution as of late is that she is the under nines uh, footy coach for Yarra of the month. Um, That was last month, don't know what's happened now. Um, And Anna Berkey is also unable to be with us tonight. Anna works with the State Library um, and has done some quite extraordinary work in the past uh, with the uh, UNESCO and Creative Cities. But we do have Tom Bentley who has stepped in at the last moment. Um, Tom is Executive Director of Policy and Impact and um, the Vice Chancellor's Innovation Professor at RMIT. He has worked with Nesta, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, not to mention at least one former PM. So um, really great to have you with us at short notice tonight, Tom. Uh, We also have Eugenia Lim, who is an artist working in video performance and installation. Eugenia is also co-director of AFIDS, an artist-run organisation. She has taught at the VCA and RMIT, um, had residencies at the Boyd Foundation, Gertrude, and her work can currently be seen at ACCA, I believe, at the moment for a really interesting exhibition that I encourage you all to go and check out called Who is Afraid of Public Space? Um, And last but not least, we have Rory Hyde, who is an assistant professor of architecture at the University of Melbourne. Um, Some of you who have been around for a while might remember Rory from his time in the architects on Triple R. And until 2020, he was curator of contemporary architecture and design at the VNA. So welcome back to Melbourne, Rory. Um, So to kick off, I just wanted to pick up on the the previous conversation and and this discussion about data and, and, you know, perfect data imperfect data, good data, bad data. And in a a place of um, challenges around pandemic, climate change, misinformation, and indeed, despite the fact that we were just discussing um, a a desire to decentralise information, the fact that a lot of data has in fact been centralised, I wanted to kick off by asking the panels, um, what what role can our public institutions play in helping to um, democratise data and this kind of knowledge. And often our cultural and our education institutions in the past have been seen as organisations who held this. As of late, they've been trying to dissolve it. So I wanted to just kick off um, asking us across the panel, perhaps starting with you, Tom. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Bree. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great conversation. And I think that public institutions, cultural institutions face a great dilemma, actually, because... Um, for generations, but especially in the in the, over the last generation, there's been this kind of um, overwhelming focus on expertise, depth of experience, uh, custodianship of knowledge, and also a concern with evidence in decision making. That's part of the background to that whole data discussion is the idea that decisions get taken with the data. And in society, we're more and more concerned that the decisions might be really bad ones or that they've been being taken 
great distance from people who are affected by them. So what is the role of institutions like universities and, and other, other public knowledge holders in navigating that? Um, you're absolutely right that more and more inst uh, institutions that um, held on to their status and their expertise by cloistering it are finding that they actually need to find ways of kind of un unlocking their vaults, encouraging people in, creating new and interactive relationships. And so actually across Melbourne, across Victoria, other places too, uh, there, there, there's a huge range of experiments going on right now, which I won't start delving into, but maybe we can talk about them some more uh, and see what, what are the experiences and, and the lessons and challenges coming out of them. Um, and I'd just like to pass this down the panel a bit. Um, Rory, first of all, from you, wh where have you seen examples of either this working quite well, maybe not well, not working quite as well as it could have in terms of really opening up and, I suppose, democratising both that access to the knowledge but also potentially to contributing to that knowledge that sits within our, our education, our cultural institutions as, as what has been canon? Yeah. Thanks, Bree. Um, I mean, I think, just to echo Tom, it's an, it's an amazing dilemma. You, I mean, you mentioned climate change, you mentioned uh, post-truth, you mentioned some of the big questions. I mean, a, a museum, I come from working in museums, I would say is a place to make sense of the world through objects, right? So it sounds pretty simple on the surface. And then you quickly, once you start pulling on that thread, you quickly realise, okay, which world, all right, whose reality are we describing here? Who, and then therefore who decides which, which objects? So it all quite quickly unravels into something quite political. Um, and I think that um, museums, cultural institutions more broadly have been obsessed with impartiality and I think that's right. But I also think that the stakes are high now and it's very hard to hide behind that word because you get back to this question, as Tom mentioned, um, well, who's making those judgments? Um, who is deciding what objects to put on display in a really literal sense? Who writes the label from whose perspective? So I think that once you start pulling on those threads, you realise, okay, wow, there's this incredible responsibility and we need to have different ways of bringing that expertise to bear. And so we talk a lot about co-curation, we talk a lot about... Um, and I actually, you know, <laughs> I say this as someone who came from a department that got closed down because we were partly too political. But I think museums have got to take a position actually. Like some sides, some things are right and some things are wrong. I don't think it's good practice for museums to say, as the Science Museum did only weeks ago, we need to work with Adani because they're going to be part of the energy transition. It's like, no, actually we need to, t we need to t call it out where it's, where it is patently part of the wrong side of history. So I think we need to be braver about what it means to be a public storyteller and take that responsibility. Yeah. And Eugene, from your perspective, having worked um, for but also with some, some larger organisations, how have you seen this interaction play out with um, sort of smaller actors, whether that's kind of individual artists or smaller organisations or indeed different publics? I guess, yeah, my contribution is as a bit of a shapeshifter within and without the institution. So I guess working across uh, museums and, and galleries and different organisations, but also always, um, I think that question of democracy and kind of bringing in, welcoming in, and also bringing art to publics as well is something that um, I'm incredibly, you know, passionate about and I think is sort of where 
the work still needs to be done and is happening more so. But I think that, um, yeah, I think that that idea of kind of bringing art to audiences and also kind of bringing in different audiences into art spaces and, and kind of engaging with, um, you know, I guess, yeah, people, I mean, often my work is sort of in, collabor in collaboration with, with non-artists as well and, and that's sort of the beauty of it, I think. And Tom, just to bring this back to you in the context of um, the, the university sector, how are you seeing this start to play out in terms of um, not only that engagement with different voices, but um, being able to tackle some of those challenges around either cultural barriers, social barriers, economic barriers in the education space? Yeah, thank you. Well, it's it's one of the ways, probably the biggest way for universities where, where I kind of happen to work, where these dilemmas and the range of differences between people's experiences and their life outcomes re really come out. Um, education is almost universally kind of thought about and referenced as being an agent of both opportunity and also of creativity and now increasingly of innovation. But actually, the functioning of our universities and often schools depends on which society you live in. But let's just talk about universities for now. The, the evidence of the last couple of generations is that uh, universities are actually bound up with the massive growth of economic inequality and the widening gaps in people's life outcomes and life chances. And I, I see this kind of great anxiety about our, our preoccupation as universities with trying to show that we're being enterprising and innovative and generating creative outcomes um, as, as a part of what we do, and it is a core part of universities, when it's also bound up with neighbourhoods becoming far more segregated, cities being changed very rapidly, and this huge explosion of inequality, which is also fueled by who can get access to which tech-related jobs, and also who can get access from kind of entrepreneurial, uh, for, for who, who can uh, access the entrepreneurial opportunities. So, I mean, at RMIT, one of the opportunities for us, one of the challenges as well, is to treat education as a more full-spectrum possibility and to find ways of being more reflective about um, how the idea of higher knowledge, which is bound up with that idea of custodianship, uh, uh, the authority of expertise and so on and so on, um, can actually go alongside working knowledge and different kinds of opportunity. It's a historical accident, maybe, as a part of RMIT's founding purpose, to be a working people's college. But we get an, a chance to kind of re-interrogate that in, in the time and, and the places that we're in. And then to think about, well, what does it mean to treat those learning experiences as part of a, a democratic commitment? and to try to develop and connect different forms of working knowledge and help everyone to gain the skills and the understanding that allow them to evaluate and to progress in their lives and in the context of a kind of contemporary community. But that does mean both kind of breaking up the way in which education has traditionally been organised and trying to disrupt the, the academic hierarchies and the status hierarchies that have come with them and also learn how to reorganise learning experiences and people's participation in them in space and time, which also leads us on to a very interesting kind of um, 
discussion, a set of opportunities about what happens in the city, how, how people can interact with it, what, what is that role, civic cultural role of, of universities and other education institutions. Just picking up on that concept of kind of reinterpreting a mission and, and also these notions of um, occupying space and time and interpreting the city through that, Rory, I might come back to you just in terms of, you know, thinking about your architecture practice and now being in a, a knowledge institution and teaching within that way. It'd be great to hear a little bit about how you are either seeing that change or how you would like to see that change in terms of the, the types of knowledge we see coming into architecture practice, the, the types of knowledge that are engaged throughout that process and that we're now seeing uh, manifest in built form. Yeah, thanks, Brie. I mean, architecture is outrageously elitist, <laughs> is the first thing to say. You know, I mean, um, we know very well which side our bread is buttered. Uh, we work for a you know, frighteningly tiny proportion of society, and especially if you only look at houses, for example, it's something like 2 or 3% of new homes are designed by architects. Um, and the idea that we could have a um, social contract, protection of title, to call ourselves architects, and only serve that, you know, it's like saying doctors who only serve 2% of, like we wouldn't put up with it. So a big part of what I'm trying to do in the, in the current work in the, at Melbourne Uni is to say, okay, well, what would it look like actually if we were to democratically apply our expertise to a the full spectrum of society. And it's a really sort of frightening question to architects who are quite comfortable with the way that their profession has been um, structured in that way. But I think we need to have this sort of NHS moment or Medicare moment, which says, actually, there's a spatial justice aspect to this and it affects people's lives really meaningfully. You know, it's very nice to sit here in postcode 3000 in the most livable city, but, you know, I... I could have walked here um, or caught the tram, but for a lot of people, that's not part of it. They have to quit their job in order to do the school run, and that's spatial injustice. And I think that if we start to take responsibility for some of those bigger questions, then the question again, to, to ask the same of, of architecture as I've asked of museums, is whose stories, whose knowledge, who decides what's relevant? Um, those questions come up again, yeah. And do you need to take this then to, into an art practice space, a lot of your work has been around public space, how different kinds of publics engage in that public space. Uh, how have you started to see either a, a changing engagement of people in terms of how they participate in that kind of work or artists and arts practice starting to engage a little bit more deeply with some of those conversations? I think that um, the last two years have been incredibly, obviously challenging, um, especially in the arts. And I think more and more this idea of interdependence and kind of um, working together and working coalitions, I guess, with other artists, but also with communities um, is just, I mean, with, within my own practice and within the sector more broadly, it feels like, um, you know, that that is our method of kind of um, creating these futures. I think Sarah mentioned from the panel before, this idea of creating imaginaries and futures that we actually want to live within. Um, and I think for me with my work and, you know, the artists that I speak with and um, the institutions that we engage with, it is this idea of creating these um, more just worlds, you know, kind of world building within our projects and within our spaces. So I think, um, you know, without going to the specifics, I think um, that's sort of the, the spirit within which we're working and trying to anyway. 
I'm going to come back to one of Rory's comments earlier around um, around climate change and how we start to, to think about that. And really, this is again a panel for a question for everyone on the panel. Do we have the right kinds of institutions? Do we have the institutions that we currently need from a, a cultural and an academic perspective to be meaningfully engaging in this conversation? I know that's a, a very big question, but we have, you know, there's, there's a lot in terms of advocacy, but w where are you seeing any potential need for shifting um, to, to grapple with some of these challenges that have a very short time frame? Tom. Yeah, thank you. Well, I think we have some institutions that who have the, the potential to adapt and to collaborate. And uh, for me, your question is pointing to uh, what is our, the, uh, our, what are our various roles in um, recreating democracy? It's been mentioned a couple of times in the, in the different panel discussions uh, already in order to enact different outcomes. For universities, there's lots of focus on why well, you've got to understand and respect the science. We can participate in, in grand, grand, you know, structuring grand challenges in order to try and create new solutions. City governments also get involved in the same things and that potential democratization of innovation is a fantastic opportunity. But it's equally clear when we think about it like that, that our politics is repeatedly failing. Uh, it's failing us, it's failing the future it's failing at what it says it's trying to do right now. And uh, learning to address that is actually a collective responsibility rather than a professional job description of any, any particular group of people that we have right now. And so for me, um, there are lots of different ways we could talk about that. There's, there are some kind of crucial ways of learning to mobilize and apply technology and technical expertise, but they absolutely have to be bound up with both the exercise of imagination that we've begun to hear about, and also the reconstruction of the collective so that we can apply collective judgment so that we can reach compromises and stick to priorities uh, or, uh, that we have agreed on for long enough for the new policy mechanisms to actually have an effect. And one of the things that I think about and try and take part in you know, the opportunity of institutions working together and us all being networked and interdependent is that for, for an institution like RMIT, one of the uh, side benefits of the last couple of years is we have, if you take all the people who are enrolled or currently work at RMIT, it's over 100,000 people in, in several different countries and, and cities. And we had a, an online forum with 900 students not long ago talking about climate change and other things. They were simultaneously in 20 countries having the same conversation, one RMIT conversation, and focusing on how, what they can, how they can be agents of progressive change, addressing climate change and other things. One of the possibilities that comes out of this shared experience is that we can both act together and deliberate together in, in, in different ways without always having to look to set up a kind of new functional or a new specialist institution. And that for me is one of the more exciting, more achievable possibilities of kind of, you know, taking this view and also thinking about how city life uh, helps to make that possible. And um, over here to my, to my left, uh, <laughs> please, whichever one of you would like to go first, but um, 
be great to hear about your, your view of this in the context of some of our cultural institutions and how they can start to help to, to mobilise and catalyse within that space and perhaps you, how you've seen this happen in some smaller organisations working more collaboratively. Yeah, I, I mean, um, one way that I think about climate change is like, what would it mean if we never built or bought or another motor, like, like another um, engine that was not sustainable or powered by green energy. So, like, that's a really, you know, we, we have the technology to do that and we, we sort of, like, we understand that we know we need to do that, but as Tom says, politically it's impossible or it's not happened yet, we've been let down. Um, so then, it, therefore, it's not technological, it's not political, it's cultural. <laughs> and that's where we come to the arts, I think, is as a space to help us to imagine that future and to, like, take us there as in a kind of time travel sense that is not scary and realises that we can quite easily align the incentives to achieve that, and we need to very quickly. Um, so that's where I think that it, art and culture are so powerful in creating those spaces and narratives about how to get where we need to get to. And it's easy to say that because it's like completely impossible <laughs> as well. But it's the one place I think that we've under, um, like, explored as a way forward. And I would love for, you know, almost like if we could just say, okay, every cultural institution, that's our goal. You know, let's just do it for the next five years. The only thing that actually matters, um, what would that look like? In a sort of, and I, and I say non-confrontational because it's like, um, you know, we, we can't do it within our bubble. We need to do it for everyone. And that's the hardest part. And actually, muse museums, cultural institutions are very highly trusted, more than media, more than politics. It's a great place to do that. And as, as um, Eugenia says, you know, you can invent futures there. Yeah, I think I'd just riff on what, um, yeah, both Tom and Rory have said. I think that... Um, it is a kind of space where things are still possible. And I think, um, you know, that that's a really hopeful space. And I think that, um, I don't know, for myself, and again, it sort of touched on something that Sarah said in the previous panel, that um, for me, art is a space where, you know, borders come down. There are spaces, you know, spaces where the local and the global do connect. And for me, I'm kind of interested in how we can think, um, yeah, in this sort of, you know, oceanic sort of interconnected way where we are grounded where we are and we're very much present in the kind of crises of our moment, but also understanding that we are um, part of a kind of global lung, a global community and the pandemic shown us that and the climate change is showing us that on a daily basis. Um, so I don't know if I have concrete, um, I don't have concrete solutions. I'm an artist, I never do. <laughs> but um, I think it is about, um, yeah, just sort of creating those kind of connective tissues to sort of imagine different ways of being. And, and I think sharing knowledge, you know, that's come up quite a lot, um, this idea of, yeah, not siloing what we know and, and not siloing our practice or expertise, but making it available. And, you know, I'd love to, work with the Grattan Institute to understand more about, you know, city data and how, um, you know, artists could reinterpret that or, or bring something if different to it to kind of imagine it for people. So, um, please, more more collaborations. Um, a, a cultural institutions very much as a sustainable engine for imagination. Um, 
Right, to come back to you, just again, picking up on what Eugenia said there around different kinds of collaborations and different kinds of voices. Again, taking it from the cultural sector perspective, who, whose additional voices, which additional kinds of knowledge streams are you seeing come in or would you like to see come in into the future and what, what kind of difference do you think that would make? Uh, um, I, was, I was really taken by this project that I looked at and it's, it's terrible because I can't remember what it's called. It's in Germany. <laughs> and they were trying to overcome people's disagreements around th this question in particular, climate, yeah? And they didn't, you know, do a vote or anything. They um, made a dance, <laughs> like a performance, where different people could play out different sides of the question. And it sounds very flippant. It sounds sort of, you know, very highbrow or ignorable is another word for highbrow, I think. Um, but, it, you know, it was a piece of proper research. And so afterwards, having, you know, role-played and engaged and played out this sort of violence, actually, of disagreement in a safe place like a theatre, they, they came out of it all with much more empathy for the other side and much more agreement on how to move forward together. So that's, for me, a sort of example of, you know, how we can work in that, in that way, yeah. And I think a great example of that productive friction, right? Like that, that antagonism isn't necessarily inherently a bad thing. It's in fact a good thing that we have conversation and debate and that we don't all vehemently agree with each other. That creates us a whole lot of other problems in that space. Um, Tom, from your perspective, what, what additional voices are you seeing coming into the education centre? What, what kinds of different knowledge flows and what would you like to see? Um, well, one kind of vitally important one is Aboriginal voices. So one, one part of this for all of us, and especially, or including education institutions, is to treat Indigenous knowledge and then also Indigenous perspectives as being a kind of fundamental constituent part of how we understand the education process and what our um, institutional responsibilities are. Uh, and so that's, I see that happening in some new and exciting ways as well. For example, we are uh, in one part of what RMIT is doing and as we try and explore outwards to create these kinds of relationships and sets of mutually understanding activities that we've been hearing about, we're exploring the, the, the area in the north of the city uh, and thinking about uh, social innovation and, and social interaction. Uh, and th those parts where RMIT's campuses are in that part of the city are also where the first public executions of Aboriginal people happened in, in Melbourne, where people were buried in uh, under parts of what's now the Queen Victoria Market, and where there are a whole, whole range of different contemporary forms of uh, knowledge, wisdom, and youth voices coming through, through our participation in vocational education programs, culture, dance, and film, and so on. So that's just one area where there's both a lot to uncover and tell the truth about, but also a kind of proliferation of excitement and imagination that we can, we can draw on in, in navigating that. Um, I'm now going to, to open up to the floor. Does anyone have any questions or do any of our panellists have questions for each other? 
If someone doesn't ask a question, I may ask you all to dance climate change. So someone's I want to see that. save us. That's a good incentive. <laughs> Countdown's on. Um, I guess I'll just speak about, uh, I guess, a current project or a research area of mine which has been working with um, on-demand or gig economy workers. So workers who um, are kind of making our city uh, keep moving. They've been feeding many of us during the pandemic. Um, I guess a lot of what I do is bringing to light, um, I mean, we talked about this before, marginal voices or, or kind of the perspectives and actual bodies of people who are often shut out from institutions or not necessarily welcomed into those spaces. Um, and I think for me, uh, it's been interesting working alongside these workers to kind of bring them into an art space, but also bring art into a trade union um, building as well. Um, Trades Hall is where we've been working in Melbourne. And I think uh, it's been interesting, I think, trying to think through ideas of labour and fair work and um, sustainability, sustainable transport, risky work, what is fair work um, together, kind of trying to find a dialogue that doesn't assume knowledge or, you know, I guess expect a particular outcome. But um, I think, yeah, it's been really interesting, I think, that idea of reciprocity and, and kind of always knowing I have as much, if not more, to learn from the people that I work with as they do from me. Um, so that's been, I guess, a central experience and I think something that I kind of look for in all the work that I do. don't know if that answers the question, but... <laughs> oh, beautifully. Um, for me, the Rory or Tom. Another question. That was a fantastic answer. Um, and I will, although we've, we've probably all um, talked quite a lot, quite enough about pandemic in a lot of ways over the last two years, um, I, I will ask each of you how you have seen um, that knowledge flows, we've talked a lot about um, these flows that have perhaps been a bit stymied throughout this space. How have you seen some of our kind of digital approaches actually help to support that in the context of either cultural connection or advancing an education agenda? Perhaps, Rory. Um, I think I've understood the question. I mean, there's, yeah, there's been a sort of broad, you know, the potential for broader access through digital channels for arts institutions has been um, positive, I think. It's, it, I don't know, I'm pretty old-fashioned. It's no substitute, is it, um, being part of a Zoom discussion or seeing a work online. I mean, the way I like to think of it is, um, you know, museums put their collections online and you can, like, look at that painting and you can Zoom it into it as close as you possibly can and you can read all about it. But actually, most people don't go to the museum to look at the paintings. They stand there to look at the painting, to look at you look at the painting, to um, have a nice lunch, to be in a civic space, to actually um, feel heavy, have heavy legs and to talk to somebody while not staring straight at them but staring at something that's on the wall. So I think there's this sort of broader civic purpose of institutions more broadly which the digital, and it's been said a thousand times, I'm sorry to say it again, but like it's no substitute. And that's why we need to reopen and re-engage and they should all be free. Um, and we, yeah. <laughs> I, 
and I've often thought about that in well, well, well before whatever it was that happened for the last two years around every time you digitise an item in a collection, you don't replace the, the need for that item. You, in fact, tend to get uh, more people wanting to come and see it and touch it. And so it's actually something that kind of um, instills that much more kind of uh, desire for social engagement, for discussion about things, for that kind of tactile um, connection. Tom? Yeah, well, so build, building on all b b both of those kind of sets of thoughts uh, in an educational but also a social and economic sense, part of what's come out of the pandemic is the realisation and the reassertion to some extent that uh, families and people make learning, parents more of the time women than men, um, uh, enable children to learn and to access what they can get from formal schooling. And on a daily basis, you have to be able to develop and create well-being and resilience in order to also go and learn and extend yourself. And so one is slightly grisly experience for many, many people, but actually one great fantastic thing coming out of the pandemic experience is the realisation that those things are co-generated by people in households, in living rooms, also in neighbourhoods, on at coffee stops, on corners, and then when they can go out and participate in culture and civic life in, in, in the like way we that are we here, were just right hearing. Now. Yeah. <laughs> so w I think one thing that's coming out of that is uh, a refocus, a renewed focus on who gets to access those things on what terms and why gig workers and people living on the edge of cities and people whose uh, citizenship rights are not established and so on actually are bound up in the whole thing. But also for me, one thing that's exciting is I, I absolutely agree with Rory about the, the value of these things. But I think there's also a moment of collective realisation that we could have cities, where, cities of 5,000 precincts as well as five big ones. Uh, and that that's a way to um, remake these shared aspects of life in a way that brings together the local, the digital, uh, and um, uh, and, a sh and shared life in new combinations. Do we have any more questions from our audience? Just to follow on from Bonnie's question and mm. Tom's point, uh, that's the big shift I think that's happened is about decentralisation. You know, I think that, you know, we had this idea of the 15-minute city before, and it was sort of felt forced, and it was about transport. It's real now. It's about neighbourhoods. It's about um, and and decentralising culture too in a big way. Yeah, and care and support and food and like and 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 everything everywhere. Everything, everywhere. It's a good note to end on. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> um, so um, please join me in thanking all of our panellists, first of all. Um, and just as we um, sanitise again, I am also going to ask you to engage with um, someone else, perhaps someone you haven't spoken to yet, perhaps the friend that you made before. Um, and I would love you just to, to raise something that you, you really fervently agreed with or perhaps didn't agree with in this, this recent session, this conversation. What really resonated with you? What made a lot of sense? Or what did you want to have a discussion about? You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.